people think they know what Hamilton is. They think they know what it sounds like. They think they know what it feels like to see and that it starts and it's a whole other thing. I've had people come to me and say, oh, that's amazing that you started doing that thing in that part. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've been doing that the whole time. There's just <laughs> right. so many other things to look at. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Nate Chinen. Nate, it is so nice to see you again. But... I must know, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? June, that was Miguel Cervantes, who plays Alexander Hamilton in the Broadway production of Hamilton. Wow, I've heard of that show. And so I guess my question of why (laughs) did you want to speak with uh, Miguel is is maybe a bit obvious, but I'm still curious. Why did you want to speak with him right now? Well, June, I get the sense that you're not a a deep Hamilton head, but I'm sure (laughs) you know who originated and, you know, defined the title role of Alexander Hamilton. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes, of course. (laughs) And so, you know, when I was thinking about what it takes to step into that role, I mean, talk about a tough act to follow, right? But it turns out that Miguel Cervantes has been playing Hamilton for a really long time. And about six weeks ago, my family went and finally saw Hamilton on Broadway with Miguel in that role. And Ah. I just could not get over his performance. You know, my family is deep into the Hamilton uh, mythos, and my daughters <laughs> were were both sort of nervous about what it would be like to experience an Alexander Hamilton not played by Lynn. But guess what? Miguel instantly made us all converts. And given the unique dimensions of his experience in that role, I knew that he would be a fascinating interview. Well, I'm very excited to hear from him, but I believe that you have an extra segment that is exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? That's right. Um, At the very end of our conversation, I couldn't help myself. I had to ask about the odd misadventure on stage, you know, live theater. What's a moment when things didn't go according to plan and how did he deal with it? And Miguel had a pretty hilarious story to tell. Well, if you are a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that amazing story at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, this might be the moment where you, uh, you know, sign up. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear extra segments on this show and others like The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Slow Burn. And of course, you'll never hit a paywall at the Slate.com site. It's pretty good. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash... Working Plus. All right, let's hear Nate's conversation with Miguel Cervantes. Miguel Cervantes, thank you so much for being on Working to talk about your process. Sure. Thanks for having me. You know, I I have to put my cards on the table here. After eight years of secondhand but really serious cultural immersion. I finally saw Hamilton on Broadway this summer (laughs) with my family. Was this first Hamilton at all, or had you had some Disney Plus? uh, Oh, no, no. Believe me, we have seen the film. We we know the soundtrack inside out. You know, I have two daughters, and we all are huge fans of the show. We just had never made it to the show, and we were blown away. But... One thing that especially blew us away was your performance in the title role. So, well, thank you. Thank you. I'll start by saying this is a Wednesday afternoon and you are preparing for a matinee. Is that right? 
Correct. Correct. Uh, about an hour and a half from now, we'll start the uh, two o'clock show. And then you'll have another show this evening. Correct. So your schedule is incredibly vigorous, right? Eight shows a week, two matinees. Um, how do you maintain equilibrium and avoid burnout? The short answer, or like the beginning of that answer is that we are sort of expected to have the tools to take care of ourselves and make sure that we are always at, at the highest percentage possible. And it's not always hundred mm-hmm. percent. Like, don't get me wrong. There are days when hundred percent is only 80 because of life. We all live our right. regular lives outside of the theater and we are not dictated as to what we are supposed to do by the directors or the, the people. Our only requirement is to be here half an hour before the show starts. Everything else is up to us as the professional to say, this is what I need to do to make sure that I can do this on Wednesday at two o'clock or on Friday at eight o'clock or twice on Saturdays, twice on Wednesdays. And for me, you know, after you know, it's been almost eight years now, it's going to be coming up on 2000 performances of Hamilton wow. um, before it's all said and done. You know, I've gone through lots of different versions of preparation depending on the environment and what's going on. I always make sure that my voice is in a specific place mm-hmm. before the show and I check in with that. And I, you know, sometimes I've been having a shoulder issue recently and sort of making sure I can get that loosened up. Uh, coffee, lots of water. I, I learned over the, this is the biggest role I've ever done in my life. Right. And I realized very quickly that water becomes part of your job. You know, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it sounds weird, but like you have to think, drink water even even when you don't, you're don't you not thirsty because the body needs that uh, for doing what we do. But other than that, you know, finding what what's going on in that day. And, and you know, like the other day, there was all the smoke in the air from mm-hmm. the Canadian wildfires. And so we had to sort right. of check in with that. Some days there's more mucus. Some days it's a little <laughs> more phlegmy. And those are kind of the hurdles that you have to find uh, from one day to the next. And then once you get out there and then you done, da, 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 you sort of, you go with whatever percentage you're at and, and ride the wave. You know, I'm glad that in addition to the vocal element, you mentioned, you know, your shoulder and, and some of the physical things, because, you know, even having watched the Disney Plus version of this show several times with my family, we were in... Um, the third or fourth row. And one of the things that we were not prepared for, although we probably should have known, was just how powerfully kinetic this show is. You know, the the choreography is stunning, of course, and all the dancers are amazing. But, you know, when I think about what you do night after night, and sometimes twice a day, that sheer physical exertion, I understand that more now, having seen the show. Yeah, you know, people always talk about that to me, they say, you know, how, how I can't even imagine doing that again. And I, I give sort of a, you know, sly answer of like, well, if anyone who does a hundred pushups every day, they're going to get a little easier, you know, right. and, and that is the case, you know, there is a certain rhythm that I can fall into uh, during the show. And I know where I have to be and sort of how, how I can make sure that I'm physically, you know, fit enough to do what I'm, what I'm asked to do. And, and you may see another Hamilton sometime uh, in, you know, in the future. And it's not as, active or it's not, it's a little more still, it's a little less sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the energy is in a different place or a different focus. And that that's another part of the, the beauty of this show. But for me, the movement and the kinetic, the, the really the, the dynamic energy on stage is part of who my Hamilton is. And I'm glad yeah. you picked up on that. I'm glad that that sort of comes through. That makes the, the sweat a little more worth it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, in looking at your background and thinking about your training, 
I have to mention, you went to Booker T. Washington High School in Dallas. Yeah, and yeah. I'm a music person, so when I hear that name, I think about Roy Hargrove and Erica Badu and Nora Jones. And so I wondered, first of all, were you involved in, in music at Booker T or were you a theater person or a, what was your path like there? My path to Booker T was interesting because I was a, a, in public high school in Dallas, Texas at the big public high school. There's 5,000 students. And um, that's just sort of the path that I was taking. I was doing theater outside of the show. And in one of the shows that I did was the King and I in a, just outside of Dallas called Garland. I met a girl mm -hmm. and she said, you know, in a dancer, she said, wow, you, you can dance pretty well. You should come to my school. And I said, what school is that? And she said, Booker T. Washington. And I didn't really know what that was. So she said, oh, it's the Arch Magnet. And they, they you can come in as a junior if you're going to join the dance department because they're always looking for guys. So I did. I went there and as a dancer and started wow. dancing in the dance department and sort of transitioned from the dance department because I was, that was sort of my, my major, uh, just mm -hmm. because that's how I entered the school. But then I you know moved over to, um, musical theater and choir a little bit. And the choirs were all, he had all these different types of choirs that people sang in. And it was, I was my first real sort of experience of like an arts lifestyle. These, the, all of these different people from all sorts of different walks of life. And Nora Jones came after me. She was after, yeah. she was, my younger brother was actually in school with her. And then Erica Badu was before me. And I'm, I'm sure there's many more unbelievably talented people that have graced the hallways of Booker T. Washington since then. So your first gig as a permanent cast member on Broadway was in the musical American Idiot, which was directed by Michael Mayer. And that show is really high energy, you know, big performances, a lot of movement. And so I was wondering if you developed any skills or insights from American Idiot that you have now brought to Hamilton. I mean, I, I think it just fits into who well, my personality type. And, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. I, I think that what... Michael Mayer and the team and Stephen Hogan and them saw in me in the room was this guy that the kinetic energy that they were looking mm -hmm. for in a show like that. So it fit really well. And all of us, all the entire company of American media, like we were just nonstop. And I thought, oh, this is what it should be. This is what I wanted to. This is how I feel most comfortable moving and expressing myself in this sort of energetic way. So it really felt, you know, very, very normal to be like out of control like that all the time. And right. so that was kind of a good fit for me, I think. And those are the kinds of things that you, I guess, you know, I never thought of it that way, but you could sort of path out where I fit because of that. That's the radiates out of my, my, my soul. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think some people listening to this right now are, are sort of nodding in recognition because you also just described an essential characteristic of the role of Alexander Hamilton <laughs> um, for a good portion of the show. And, you know, one thing that maybe we will touch on in a second is how that affect evolves. And I think you're so, you so beautifully convey that transformation. But let's pause for a second and note I'll jokingly call it the elephant in the room. Uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda not only created and originated. Alexander Hamilton. It's like completely stamped with his flow, with his personality, his perspective. And so in thinking about your relationship to the role, I really wanted to ask how you approached, you know, I'll call it the burden of expectations, right? Is that something that you wrestled with at all in 2016 when you, when you first took the lead in Chicago? You know, it's a great question because when I was in um, rehearsals, when I got the job, you know, I asked the music, Alex Slackamore, I said, you know, 
what exactly do you want for me? Because I was listening, I watched Lynn do it and I was listening to, yeah, the soundtrack was out then. So I listened to it and I said, you know, I can just do my version of that. Like I could just sort of recreate his rhythms and his, and his, and he said, no, 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 no. Lynn does it how he does it. Javier does it how he does it. And now we'd like for you to do it the way you do it. And I said, oh, okay. That's cool because there are some of the things that the way Lynn says things and the way I said, I don't feel like that's how I would do it. That's how, right. how I feel like my Hamilton, how I envision my Hamilton. They said, great. That's why you're here. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And then, you know, that released, you know, people ask me that question all the time about these big shoes to fill. And I said, well, you know, they took those, threw those shoes away <laughs> right. and they're making new shoes for me. Yeah. And, you know, Lynn would come in and he would say, oh, that's cool. That's so cool. The coolest thing he ever said to me was like, I love how you do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. he was never, I was never required or asked to recreate anything. And no one in the state is, no one here is going to be, um, you may see some similarities just because they're saying the same words and some of the energies are the same, but you're going to see a different Lafayette or Angelica or Eliza or, mm -hmm. or whatever in any company you see. And that's was so refreshing to be able to, create a Hamilton that felt comfortable in this body and right. in this voice. And, and, you know, and this is the thing, you know, I watched Lynn do what he did. And I was like, I can never do that. I, I can, I can't do that because you watch him do the show and you understand you don't separate the man who's saying the words from the man who created the world. Right. And, and so exactly. there's, just, there's no, it's not fair. And they said, no, it's, you're exactly right. It's not fair. So we're not asking you to do that. We're asking you to be you. Yeah. You know, because the, the, the act of what the thing is acting is not pretending to be someone else. It's how I would be in this very specific circumstance. Right. And so that is what we were allowed to do. Yeah, that's really striking, right? Is it, And I think it, it's so powerfully conveyed in your performance that you are locating the truth of this character, you know, in your body and in your embodiment of him, you know. And this show which is such a cultural phenomenon right it's like really an obsession for a lot of people and and you know every big broadway show has this where you know there's a rotation of cast and but the cast album has the original cast and people come in with a certain like this is the thing that i know and there's a there's a process right of letting it go like checking it at the door and surrendering to the experience. And my daughters expressed a little nervousness coming in because they they know Lynn's Hamilton so, so well, right? And they're like, I hope it doesn't distract me. I said, no, give it about 30 seconds. And <laughs> and actually it only took about three seconds. Well, the, the, the amazing thing about it is is that people think they know what Hamilton is. They think they know what it's going to be. They think they know what it sounds like. They think they know what it feels like to see. Right. And then it starts and it looks and sounds, and it's a whole other thing, especially with the Disney plus being out that people think, Oh, I know what Hamilton is. And then they get here and they're like, I had no idea. Just like right. people right. who see the show, even on Broadway, I've had people come to me and say, Oh my, Oh, that's amazing that you started doing that thing in that part. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've been doing that the whole time. There's just <laughs> right. so many other things to look at that yeah. you sort of are experiencing. So it's like a new experience every time. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Nate's conversation with Miguel Cervantes.
Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com. You can also send us a voice memo to that very address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Nate's conversation with Miguel Cervantes. I want to talk about Chicago for a minute because you played Hamilton in the Chicago production for the entirety of its three-year run. It was a record-breaking show, really a phenomenon in a town that knows theater. And you had a a really, what seems like an incredible experience there. Um, Does that feel like a, a separate standalone chapter to you? even though you're playing the same character in the same show? Yes. Yes. There's no question that that experience in Chicago will never happen again because I will finish here in this building on Broadway and then some other one's going to take the reins and they're going to be an amazing Hamilton right after me and my Broadway story will just be a footnote on the, uh, you know, the, the, the tome of Hamilton Broadway. But that Chicago thing was its own like sort of front to back novel and it mm-hmm. in, it in, involved my family and my children and the city and and lots of different groups and then the Hamilton family that that was part of that for me personally and I think for the city as well I think for Chicago to have its own little thing and look Hamilton's going to be there I think in about a month and it's going to be there for four or five months so it's going to be there again but they will close there and move on to another another city mm-hmm. so for that yeah. reason, it's it's a little bit different in how it will be experienced. Yeah, I mean that seems like a, a beautiful testament. You know, you you mentioned the support that you'd receive from the community, and, and this raises a you know a, a difficult subject. And you know, I'll ask, I guess, permission to bring it up. Uh, but you and your wife Kelly lost a child just as you were taking this role, and I know you've spoken at length about this and and been very active in raising money for research and support in the fight against childhood epilepsy. And I I just bring this up because starting this role with something so heavy happening in your family, I mean, I I struggle to imagine it. And I wanted to, to ask, it seems like the two things are so connected in your personal life that um, I I just wanted to bring it up. Of course. Of course. Thank you. Um, You know, the, story of Adelaide, my daughter, and Hamilton, Chicago, like I was saying before, is just unbelievable. They're so connected uh, for our family and for our experience. And the ugly reality of her condition and how devastating it was for me and, and Kelly, my wife, and Jackson, my son, it was part of our daily existence. You know, this just, right. just it was doctors and seizures and suffering and this really... An, uh, terrible way to have to be a parent and my wife shouldered much of that burden for our family because i had to do the show i had to leave every night i had to go and our conversations were very much like how many seizures were there today um i got you know those kinds of things i would get home and say how was bedtime and and that was our normal but what i did find was that even though there was tragedy and loss in this show, I would find myself able to 
not be Miguel and not have those things mirror my real life. And in, in mm-hmm. fact, I was, you know, able to find solace and peace in a, for lack of a better word, a pretend world, you know, because then I could not be me for just a little while and right. find respite in the art and the singing and the movement and, and all of these things that would sort of distract me. And so, which leads me to say that my wife being the superhero parent that she was, she didn't have that. She didn't have that kind of an escape that I did. And that is part of the struggle, you know, that I would feel guilt for having this place to go. And, and that was all part of the same terrible experience that something like this can be, but it did come with a built-in support for our family. That was Hamilton and the entire community of the theatrical community of Chicago to support us and the work that we began to do because of it. It also gave us an outlet to be able to stand on a box and and scream out to the world that this should be talked about more in the epilepsy community needed help and support and funds and all of those things that we have been doing and continue to do. And, and as well as after her death, which was only two months before the show closed, we were able to find comfort in the community again. You know, when, when you mention the sort of pretend world, you know, there are lots of plays that, that you could have been a part of, lots of productions that you could have been a part of that would have been like all the way pretend world. But in Hamilton, you 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 have to also contend with a character who loses a child and deals with guilt and overwhelming grief. And, it, you know, especially in the song, It's Quiet Uptown, which is, you know, incredibly emotionally powerful anyway, absent any additional context. Um was that difficult for you to perform in during this time or, or was it a conduit of some kind? I remember thinking that it was going to be difficult. I remember thinking, okay, just be prepared for that part of the show. And in fact, the most difficult part was Dear Theodosia because I wasn't mm. thinking about my daughter that we lost. I was actually thinking about my son who Mm -hmm. is still here and is going that, you know what I mean? And sort of that caught me off guard that that was the most difficult part. And then quiet uptown was, I feel like I was just so shocked that during quiet uptown, I thought of Hamilton losing Philip in a Mm. gunfight. Yeah. And I did not think of Miguel losing Adelaide. And that sort of kept me not only in the moment, but able to focus on my job. You know, and right, not lose right. myself. And, you know, listen, it, the truth of something like this about about the show, about Hamilton, anyone who's doing Hamilton, hopefully with a heart and, and it's not made of stone, is going to feel really big emotions playing this part during a quiet of town. It's just human nature. But that was, you know, at, at that point, that was in 2019. We started in 2016. So that I had had at that mm-hmm. point almost 1,100 go rounds of losing my son on the stage and so you know the edge is dull no matter what and then it becomes your work your your work as an actor to get into that moment in some way to make sure that there is emotion and that there's realness in whatever way it is that it's real and it's not put on it's not pretending um that there is something emotionally real whether that means actual tears or not it's just about being very present in a real way because 
like anything else, you do it a thousand times. It's not going to be, it's not going to be as powerful as a sharp emotion. It's a dull, it's kind of a dull feeling that you right. have to find some real sharpness. Do you think of it almost as a place that you go to in the context of the show? Um, like a place that you revisit every, every show? Yeah. You know, I think there are very specific times that I say, think of something right in this moment. And, but I don't think of my life. So that's, I know there, there are lots of different strategies for acting and to find an emotional place. But in, for instance, the minute Philip dies, I think of a father looking at his son dying. You know what I mean? And, I, and, that, and that pops into a, a, a very emotional place. And then I actually have to take my arms and do it a certain way. And then I have to make sure I have my hand in a certain place. And those, the logistical things have to kick in too. And so that, that marriage of finding an emotional connection, whether it's, you know, and every once in a while, I will think of my son at home holding hands with his sister. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just as a visual yeah. to sort of get me. You know, and those are those are the the tricks, I guess you can call it. But what I did find after Adelaide's death was that the journey was very close to be able to find a moment. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have to. Th I didn't think too hard. I didn't work too hard. I just let myself be, but tried to focus on Hamilton and not on Miguel. And I think that helped to be able to stay in the moment and calm and not lose myself into the emotion because, you know, I would have my emotional times mm -hmm. in, in other ways and other places. And at the end of the day, I do have to sing a song. <laughs> I do have to right. be able to perform. Right. And so they have to, there's a, there's a very fine line between allowing real emotion to take over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. <laughs> and as I think about the idea of, of, the demands of the show. With the time we have left, I want to talk about Broadway specifically, um, because, you know, Chicago, as you said, was this very intense and special experience. And then looking up your name, I, I came across a Playbill headline that might make you chuckle. Um, it says, Miguel Cervantes takes on title role in Broadway's Hamilton beginning March 3rd. Oh. And uh, this is, of course, March 3rd of 2020. Um, and so reading that, it's almost like um, standing on the deck of the Titanic, like, oh, what's that dark shape in the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, moving towards us. So can you go back to the, the incredible experience of like the excitement of getting ready to open and then opening and then very swiftly all of Broadway goes dark and all of New York City grinds to a halt. I mean, what was that like for you? You know, it's a great story because I tell people that all the time about how my first performance was March 3rd and I did 10 performances and some, we had a, what do you call it? The Edgeham, the educational show on Wednesday afternoon. And then mm -hmm. I was getting ready for the second show. And I said, man, this really feels funny. This feels like something is not right. And then there were, at intermission, there was an, an NBA game that was on the TV up here and they were canceling it. And I said, I don't know if we're coming back here tomorrow. And, you know, I, yeah. I was so excited and we had all of these plans moving my family from Chicago to New York and returning to our, our life here and, uh, you know, sort of closing that chapter of our lives. You know, Hamilton had closed six weeks earlier. We were planning to move our house. We were beginning to move forward after Adelaide's death and, you know, becoming the new version of our family, you know, and I think that all was put to a grinding halt 
you know, the Broadway opening was so exciting and then just stopped. And then our life reverts back to our living in Chicago in the home that Adelaide was in and our, you know, everybody, everybody has their own story of how this was difficult. And that was ours. Ours was going back into this sort of limbo state of grieving parents and, and watching the world have this terrible experience. And, and that was, it was really unsettling and unsure and, and unclear as to what was going to happen. But the whole time, you know, Hamilton was so great about taking care of us and keeping us informed and letting us know what was going on and saying, this is happening. Don't worry. Don't worry. And, you know, listen, we watched many colleagues not have that and not get, not have something to look forward to at the end. And then, so the days kept coming back and the seasons kept happening and they were like, and finally it looked like September of 2021 and the whole revamp of the idea of going back into there and, and putting this behind us. And I, I come out on stage, right. And, and I come out uh, and says, you know, what's your name, man, Alexander Hamilton. And my last one in Chicago was one of the most unbelievable experiences I'll ever have. And I am not Lynn Manuel Miranda, nor do I even think that I, I come close to to having the sort of global appeal that he does. And his last performance on Broadway, it was one of the most thrilling things when he came out. And my last performance on in Chicago felt I got a little piece of what he probably experienced. It was just so, and it was the city saying goodbye and appreciating the show and us. And it was yeah. just very. And I, we felt it again on that day in September <laughs> when we walked out there again. Yeah. It was this unbelievable feeling of, you know, sort of relief that we were back in the room. But yes, to go back to what you said, my Broadway, my Broadway return, <laughs> triumphant return to Broadway was very, very short lived. <laughs> just It was just put on hold exactly. for a little while. Exactly. Well, your performance and your presence in this show is just, it's unbelievable and it's, it feels so right and it's life-sustaining. Uh, you know, anyone who's listening to this who has not yet seen Hamilton or has not seen Hamilton with Miguel as Hamilton, <laughs> please go out and do yourself a favor. It was a, a, a huge highlight uh, for me. And so has this conversation been. So Miguel, thank you again so much for joining us on Working. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, and yeah, please come check it out. Up next, Nate and I will talk about how repetition and ritual can fuel the creative process. Nate, that was just a beautiful and moving interview. I think there's a lot to learn from Miguel's responses to pretty much everything that life has thrown at him. But I think my ears perked up particularly when he talked about the notion of using rhythm almost as a template for a performance. Mm. Uh, after playing a role for more than 2,000 times, it makes sense that muscle memory kicks in. You know, the body is almost on its own track, which can free the mind to focus on whatever it needs to deal with that particular day. But I wonder... Is there any equivalent of that in your creative practice? I mean, you're an editor and a writer and a jazz critic. Are there rituals that you use or even maybe just ingrained habits that help you get to work when the time comes? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's also a little bit tricky for me because unlike Miguel, who 
you know, reports to the Richard Rogers Theater every day, knowing what's ahead yeah. of him. Um, yeah. You know, the, the details are different for me day to day. You know, there's some days where I'm more focused on editing or I'm reporting or, you know, I'm in meetings all day. Um, <laughs> and as a critic, I also need to make sure that I clear time for focused listening, which Ooh. can be the very hardest thing. But, you know, y- your question leads me to a moment back when I was reviewing live music for the New York Times, you know, going out three or four nights a week and reviewing concerts. I did have a a routine of sorts and I kind of learned the hard way. It really wasn't helpful for me to come straight home from a show with the music still buzzing in my ears and start writing. You know, the the signal to noise ratio wasn't right. So I needed a little distance and, and I'd sleep on it and I would wake up you know, around seven o'clock and have my breakfast, my coffee, and then I would get to work. And this was for a noon deadline. So, you know, having that ticking clock was, I found it to be like kind of terribly stressful, but also like a really, really helpfully focusing factor. You know, it was like, there's no excuses. There's, you have no option but to get this thing done. Yeah, I do think like this is my job is a really good ritual, you know, just to remember I need the paycheck. But I have to tell you, my heart is like beating extra hard right now when you're telling me about that deadline, that looming <laughs> deadline. Like, ah, oh, why? How? Yeah, it's a thing that I that I found through trial and error worked for me, because if I gave myself the option to write all night, guess what? Mm. I would write all night. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. No, not helpful. No, no. Especially if, if you had to do it two days later or the next day again, yeah. Um, I'm so glad that you asked Miguel about how he felt about being compared with Lin-Manuel Miranda, if only because he's playing a part that Lin-Manuel Miranda not only wrote and originated, but people have heard that version over and over again. They might have listened to the original cast recording thousands of times and seen the Disney Plus version dozens more they're only going to hear Miguel once, probably. And I loved his take. Right, yeah, right. I'm not filling his shoes. They took those shoes away. That's that's mm-hmm. a really great attitude. And it's the perfect attitude, I think. But yeah. today I have an opportunity to talk with an eminent jazz critic. And it really <laughs> struck me that, you know, taking over a role, making it your own, that's just a fact of musical theater. That will happen. You get used to that. Maybe you, you kind of you figure out what you're going to do in that situation. But the jazz standards tradition means that, you know, people hear and maybe judge different artists' performances of the same repertoire as a critic or maybe Mm -hmm. even just as a jazz lover. How do you approach different versions of the same piece, especially when they are strongly associated with their originator? I mean, I imagine you're not just like playing them side by side and comparing them. That would be crazy. So what do you do? That's a wonderful question. And I'll say the thought did occur to me as I was talking with Miguel that the role of Hamilton was analogous to a standard, you know, from the Great American Songbook that's been stamped by some iconic interpretation, maybe maybe once, maybe more than once. <laughs> yeah. And as you said, the jazz tradition is instructive here because you take a song like Body and Soul, which was composed in 1930, but for all intents and purposes... It really got its stamp in 1939 when the tenor saxophonist Coleman Hawkins recorded this famous, really iconic improvisation over the two. Mm. 
And so, okay, every right-thinking jazz musician who's <laughs> attempted to play this song since then is in dialogue with his version in some way. There's no option not to be. But, you know, the thing is, that isn't a limiting factor. It's just a, a, another layer of meaning. So when I hear a contemporary saxophonist like um, Joe Lovano playing Body and Soul today... Or pianist Jason Moran has a, a version that he likes to play. So there's a context, there's a sort of larger context that informs my listening just as it informs the playing. Yeah. So that's one thing I really love about Miguel's response, because, you know, as he sees it, he isn't in competition with Lin-Manuel Miranda's portrayal of Hamilton, right? Yeah. He's yeah. in dialogue with it. Just as he's in tune with the character, you know, as it's written and created in, in the production um, and the role that he has to play. Yeah, yeah. He's not doing an impersonation. He's bringing his version of this character and this role. And that's what everybody wants, you know, whether they know it or not, probably. Yeah, exactly. Nate, I just so appreciated the sensitivity of your approach to asking Miguel about how he kept working while his family was dealing with something as absolutely devastating as the loss of a child. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything worse. And he talked about finding solace and peace in a pretend world, which felt incredibly powerful. And it strikes me that that's a strategy we can all employ, even when the situation we're seeking relief from is something far less overwhelming. Absolutely. I think art and creative expression can be a solace in so many ways, you know, and that registers differently depending on the person. In the case of Miguel, I was so just utterly moved by the grace that he demonstrated in the face of that devastating loss. And there's a couplet sung by the ensemble in Hamilton's song, It's Quiet Uptown. Uh, it goes, the Hamiltons move uptown and learn to live with the unimaginable. All the moments when you're in so deep, it feels easier to just swim down. The Hamiltons move uptown and learn to live with the unimaginable. This just stuck with me, you know, especially sitting in the theater and watching Miguel on stage, you know, in that moment. Yeah. And yeah. of course, it's potentially a difficult thing for him. And so, you know, it's clear that his experience in the role of Alexander Hamilton has been interlaced with this personal experience of grief. And the reason that I brought it up is because in this very terrible but meaningful way, the navigation of that emotional territory has been a part of his creative process. Mm -hmm. And so what he said about finding a kind of harbor in the show even as he worked through this experience, uh, just that was incredibly powerful to me. Yeah, for real. Oh. Um, it also strikes me that Miguel's career trajectory has been such a roller coaster, you know, <laughs> yeah. and he seems yeah. to he seems have endless things, everything that you mentioned almost. And he seems to have ridden it with remarkable equanimity, but it also must have been absolutely awful to play, what, 10 performances on Broadway and then be shut down and have no idea what was coming next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I have several friends who, after long and successful careers in the arts, 
did not get a chance to go back post-pandemic. It was great to hear that the Hamilton company was so supportive, but that wasn't always the case. You know, friends of mine lost jobs because of cuts and downsizing. And I'm curious how the jazz world has recovered. Um, Outsiders like me have a kind of a sense that the genre has been in trouble for years, but I will freely admit that that is completely based on ignorance. So please tell me, what's the state of jazz's health these days? June, this may come as a surprise, but the state of our music is strong. I'm going (laughs) to borrow a presidential cadence there. Um, You know, five years ago, I published a a book called Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century. And the sort of central thesis was that the music was in good shape. But it was an argument that I felt I really had to make at the time. Mm. And I feel like it's now, you know, to get lofty again, I think this is now a truth that's self-evident, you know? (laughs) Earlier this month, I was up at the Newport Jazz Festival, which was entirely sold out all three days this year. And just, it had this sort of, like, incredible youthful energy that really gives a person hope. Mm. And and I've been in the same situation at, I think, almost every post-pandemic club gig that I've attended. Just... You know, the houses are packed. People are wow. really excited to come out again. They're excited about this music and what's happening in it. Yeah. And the artists are doing incredible things. You know, in some cases, the pandemic actually gave the musicians like a really, I won't say welcome, but but a, a really rejuvenating opportunity to get out of the grind of touring and and just really like sit with their art and focus and, and improve, you know? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, I say all that, you know, I don't want to downplay the hardship of the Mm, pandemic. mm, It was awful, you know, and the broader struggle of of being a musician trying to make a living in the streaming era. If your initials are not, you know, T.S. as in (laughs) T-Swift, you know, these are real and ongoing concerns. Right. Um, But to the, the core of your question, the resilience that I see on the scene, it's just it's so encouraging. And I'm, you know, I'm really happy to be able to say that. Oh, well, that makes my heart happy, so that's wonderful to hear. I'm afraid that's all the time we have this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never, ever miss an episode. And just as a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Decoder Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Miguel Cervantes once again and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with writer Dan Hornsby. Until then, get back to work.